sitting at the house of mercy on the water's edge was a man who met the Savior, so the gospel says. Waiting there he was with the Just to sit here at the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. Just to sit here at the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. party yeah that's right next week after church is like an all-church party everybody come to my house and there's gonna be uh, drinks and what some what do you eat at a party party foods it's appetizers. like appetizers nice appetizers nice appetizers yeah a couple duds in there but we won't tell you what they are <laughs> um, but it's gonna be just a good time everybody come we're trying to like all uh, learn how to re-socialize a little bit you know and so uh, come out you can stand in the corner if you like. It would be a first step. But uh, all the information is coming out in the newsletter on my address and everything. If you don't get the newsletter, you can go to the website and sign up for it. But Jeannie and I would love it if you would all come to our house after church next week for a party. All right. Hey, you know, we used to have a pretty good volunteer infrastructure here, but during the pandemic, that kind of broke down. And, and we need to build it back up again. So today I'm thinking about coffee. Isn't it great to have the coffee it back? It is nice to have coffee back, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, someone needs to make that, and that's our altar guild. That's the beautiful people who make the coffee. They set up the communion and uh, put up the paintings. And we need some more people in that rotation. Yeah, absolutely. Is yeah. that guilting people? It's not, I don't think so. No, I think that's just solid facts. But uh, I will tell you this, guilty people, it is true that at our volunteer levels now, carrying forward, we will only be able to serve six people coffee a week. So um, I'm going to let you, you know, you can rotate amongst yourselves to let you work that out. But uh, if we see seven or eight, we're going to come and take that coffee back. Um, yeah. Yes, now it is officially called, the position is the Eucharistic Barista. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, excellent. Oh yeah, and can you make that little crucifix on, yeah, in the foam? Absolutely. Yeah, that's good, all right. If you're interested, you can do that. You can let Russell and I know, or you can email info at houseofmercy.org. Or talk to Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Started in two weeks, is it? Two weeks is the, everybody looks forward to it. It's just so exciting. It's the beginning of the new church calendar year. Well, it's actually three weeks. Three weeks, three weeks from now, yeah. Maybe two weeks. Three weeks. But, um, we have had alternative lectionaries in the past, and this year, well, for the last couple of years, we've been wanting to create a 
Spiritual Practice Lectionary, a year focusing on spiritual practice, interpreting the text through a lens of spiritual practice, because it seems like now more and more we need spiritual practice. We need a regular practice just to get out of damn bed and live through the day. But uh, so we are in preparation for that in two weeks, going to be meeting right after church and creating uh, their altar boxes, we call them. We've made them in the past, uh, small little boxes per household. Um, we'll create them, and there'll be prayer cards in there. There'll be a little candle in there, and we'll use them during Advent, and then um, you can carry on using them, if you like, um, all during the year of spiritual practice. So two weeks, next week, party. Week after that, uh, after church, we're going to begin making these altar boxes. So, yeah. Also in the newsletter. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way where the soul never dies. My darkest night will turn to day where the soul never dies. No to life. 
Would you please join me in the prayer of invocation? Spirit of the living God, fall upon us. Hold us in your arms as we hunker down, we tuck in, we prepare for these months in darkness. May it be a time where we can gather together in hope, in support, unity, remembering that your mercy is always with us. Amen. May the peace of God be with you all. Let's exchange the sign of peace with one another. St. Paul, the city where I was saved from death and hell, darkness as well. Faith freed me from the grave. What did I know? Oh, oh, oh. about amazing grace God said let's go follow me slowly to a merciful place when I got lost it nearly cost me my love and my
was hurt I thought that your hurt would rub salt in my wounds But from my first visit that curse vanished like a new moon What did I amazing grace God said let's go follow me slowly to a merciful place what did I know what did I know about amazing grace God said, let's go, follow me slowly to a merciful place. That grand old gospel music soothes my soul. Ain't no way to choose it over rock and roll any Any way you use it, it will make you whole. 
Join me now in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer with God in your mercy. I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, your oversufficiency is apparent everywhere. In our beating hearts, in our conceiving, musing, and reasoning minds, in the created world, we struggle against and gratefully will not prevail. We pray that we would seek to understand the many things we have in common with one another, with our neighbors, our churches, people inside of Christianity, outside of Christianity, people in America, or wherever else we once belonged. Let us look to those things we have in common, places that we can recognize that we are unified. Remind us that our capacity for peace and love is only measured by our capacity to care for our enemies. Remind us that we are all unified in your love and our care, your care. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for the politicians and the power brokers, the workers and the activists, those who go to the polls filled with hope and those who do it in spite of a deeply held cynicism. Motivate everyone to step out, to participate, and to vote. And may our vote be guided by an ethic of love. God, in your mercy, God of mercy, we remember those that we have loved who have died. We are grateful for all that they have given us and how they have shaped us, for the humanness, for their joy or pain that they have shared with us. For the gift of life and the mystery of death, we thank you, God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for all those people in our lives who are in need of spiritual, emotional, or physical healing. Those who are facing recent diagnosis, those who are preparing for surgery or procedures, and those who are recovering. We pray for those who are in prison and those who are imprisoned by addiction, we ask that you hold all of these people in our lives, gather them in your arms. 
Grant them healing. Grant them peace. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we have not always loved you with our whole selves. And we have hurt those we love and some that we do not know by the things that we have done, the things that we have failed to do. Forgive us for our sins and our missteps that we make out of fear. We know that you are gracious and you judge us with your mercy. You find us innocent and forever lovable. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, meet us now in this extended time of silence. Amen. For fear the hearts of men are failing. These are the latter days we know. For dread depression now is spreading. God's word declares it would be so. I'm going where there's no depression to a lovely land that's free from care. I will leave this world of toil and trouble for my home in hand. I'm going there in that good
The reading comes from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, starting with verse 27. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving his wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, then the second and third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him another question. The word of God. Yeah, so the whole angel thing, I don't know. For me, corny, like Precious moments, figurines just keep coming through my mind, like blonde-haired, blue-eyed, rosy, fat-cheeked little white children with wings. Actually, a little more creepy than compelling. Sometimes something that could be so wild and breathtaking gets so fixed in some deadening way that it's hard to unfix. That's angels for me. But anyway, the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection present this story so they can pose a question. Maybe not a curiosity that's really welling up inside of them, but a question meant to challenge the belief in resurrection. They bring up a law of Moses in Deuteronomy, which happens to come right after this law, 
you shall muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain. It was a law meant to ensure that a man's seed lives on after he dies, even if he never had a son in this life. And in Deuteronomy, it is a son that's specified, not a child. The brother of the dead man is supposed to take the dead man's widow and give her his seed so that she might have a son who would then bear the dead man's name so the dead man's name will live on in Israel. But say the first brother dies, say the Sadducees, and there was still no son. So the second brother takes the woman and gives her his seed, still no son. Then he dies, and the third brother gives her his seed, and the fourth brother, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh, they all take her and give her their seed and die, and there is still no son. Finally, the woman dies, childless, and I would think pretty tired of men. So, Jesus, they ask, which man will this woman belong to in the resurrection? Well, when I hear that story, I feel agitated. The images of what women have endured under patriarchy keep coming to mind, sexual violence, subordination, the criminalization of bodily autonomy, handmaid's tale, anyone? The, women, the woman the Sagittarius speak of in this story was property, as all daughters and wives were, and in this case, handed down from one brother to the next to the next, a depository for the men's seed, and then actually a sort of failed incubator for a son. For the Sadducees, it's a story meant to question the plausibility of resurrection. But I hear a story about a woman passed down from man to man. I keep thinking, how awesome it would have been, how potentially consequential if Jesus took the opportunity then and there to dismantle the patriarchy. Maybe he could have said something like, you know what? That's a terrible story. <laughs> or maybe, my, aren't you a gang of rich chauvinists and titled brutes? But Jesus doesn't seem to be angry like me. And it's not his purpose to shame or judge them. So cool. But so often in dealing with patriarchy in the Gospels, trying to be aware of historical setting and the sociological realities of the time, people will say something like, well, in the face of all that formative patriarchy, Jesus really is quite a feminist. But was Jesus bound by his culture, formed by the patriarchy? I mean, isn't the idea that Jesus wasn't bound by all the forces we're bound by? Isn't that kind of part of the whole thing? I mean, he's God incarnate. He cures incurable diseases. He rises from the dead, you know? So, I don't know, probably not formed and bound by patriarchy, right? He actually 
loved women, had them in his inner circle. I won't go into everything we're talking about in the Mary Magdalene study, but loved women. And I guess it seems to me that loving someone in a way that's meaningful or in a way that a person needs to be loved precludes seeing them or thinking of them or going along with a cultural bias that perceives them as not fully human. In this case, an object, a repository that can be passed from man to man. I actually don't think that's bringing too much of a modern lens to scripture. I think it's more of an expectation that God's love transcends the death-dealing mechanisms of the world. So I sort of want Jesus not to seem so calm. They ask, whose wife will this woman be? For seven had owned her. I sort of want him to be like, well, you little misogynist jerks. Do you honestly believe that God is like some guy, some head of the patriarchal department of injustice that actually like oversees what man owns what woman? As if God was a God that somehow manages your little patriarchal system? That's a stupid story and you're stupid. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. He probably loves them and understands them and has compassion for them. But actually without being harsh or combative, I think he does do a pretty good job of showing how small-minded they are. And maybe because he loves people in spite of their sin or ignorance or small-mindedness and doesn't make war and call people names and shame them, even though I might in my small-mindedness like to see him do that occasionally, Instead, he is gently persuasive. And maybe that's the right tactic if you want people to come to see something. But I mean, he's still radical. He quotes scripture, Moses, who they respect, showing that Torah actually does affirm the resurrection. Though they may have thought that resurrection was some inessential add-on to faith in God, Jesus shows how it's always been essential to God's very nature. God is a God of resurrection, a God of the living, not the dead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are dead at the time, the way most people would see it, but living, apparently, according to God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's stories are stories where God overcomes ster sterility and barrenness, with fertility and life. Abraham married Sarah, and she could have no children. Isaac married Rebekah, and her womb was closed. Jacob married Rachel, but she was barren. In these stories, human effort often proves futile, but God gives life to the dead. God calls into existence what doesn't exist. It's about the status quo, hopelessness, death, being overcome by divine passion and love and mercy. God is a God of resurrection. God pursues and cares for God's people past any limit in life or in death. 
God doesn't proceed according to the status quo. So you think this woman could belong to one of these men in a just and transformed, deathless, merciful, loving reality? No way. The God of the living is something different than we're used to thinking of imagining, I think. Like, like we live in 3D and this is like 13D or something. The God of the living isn't confined by the constructions of men, is so alive that our constructions seem like withering grass when this alive brushes past. God is enormously, fiercely living, creates and creates from nothing, from death, something so living that death is no thing like a kitten in a cage. I think it's hard to imagine because I think we give death so much power. It's so definitive for us. We focus so much on this time between when ourselves are born and when ourselves die, our lifespan. But maybe that's a pretty limited way to imagine. The resurrection isn't this thing that allows us to hold on to ourselves forever. It's a thing that reveals that the status quo will be undone. It's like our minds have been so thoroughly constructed by the order of the world that we just can't see outside the constructions. But Jesus means to lead us outside of the constructions, beyond the lines, beyond death to life. And not a deathy kind of life that we might be used to, which can be sort of cramped and confined and fearful, constrained by envy and rivalry and judgment and binary thinking and the mirage of scarcity, but everlasting life. Resurrection is the revelation that death is a thing without any ultimate power. It doesn't walk or talk or strut or feel or make sounds or wield a scythe. It can't hold on to it. It has no hands. To live beyond death. That doesn't seem to be primarily about like yourself, whatever that even is, going on to live somehow after you die. It's being freed to live unfettered, undeterred, undefined by the deathish, death-making mechanisms that order the world as we know it. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know how it translates into how we act, but it seems exciting. Like we're free not to grant power to the deathy mechanisms that suck life from the world. Maybe it could be not believing that the results of the election on Tuesday will determine everything. Maybe it's an opening up that frees a person to feel compassion and lay down their arms against their enemies. Or maybe it's like Oscar Romero defending the poor against right-wing death squads even when they threatened his life because he wasn't afraid of death, that little kitty in a cage. Maybe the God of resurrection was breathing into him. Or like Berta Caceres, a Honduran indigenous environmentalist, continued to bring all the force she could muster 
against a giant destructive hydropower project, even after she was warned that she would be murdered if she continued to do so, and she did, and she was. But maybe that's kind of practicing resurrection. You know, just in case the election doesn't go well. Jesus seems to suggest that as we have our minds and lives and selves transformed by the gospel, we will be brought to life by a love that is unfetteredly creating life all the time. Undoing the delusions, the violent rivalry, the self-seeking, condemning, judging, a love that is gathering up all the shreds and tatters and fragments, loving, gathering, the victims of death squads in all their forms, the victims of war, disease, depression, injustice, gathering, Russians, Ukrainians, Jews, Muslims, Catholics, Baptists, Franklin Graham, the Dalai Lama, Sadducees, misogynists, Oscar Berta, Emmett Till, George Floyd, all of this being equally, creatively taken up and transformed, none of this given up or hopeless or canceled out or judged lesser, but somehow all rolled up in the ever-creating, ever-loving life. Good is probably not the best word for it. Grace, maybe, mercy, broke and bled and poured out for all people. Practice resurrection. Some glad morning when this life is over, I fly away to a Yeah.